Today, July 3rd, 2019, marks six years after the first democratically elected president of Egypt, Dr. Mohamed Morsi, was evicted from office in a coup d'etat by then-General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi at the head of the army. Since then, he has ruled Egypt with an iron fist. We look back at those years. Our guest speaker is Professor James Galvin from the History Department at UCLA. Professor Gelvin, welcome to our show, and thank you so much for being with us. You're also the author of The New Middle East, What Everyone Needs to Know. So The New Middle East, I will just go back to the revolution of January 25, 2011, in Tahrir Square. We cannot forget the images of the thousands of protesters chanting bread, freedom, social justice, and the exhilaration of February 11, 2011, when Hosni Mubarak had to step down. What is the significance of this happening? Looking back at those uh, events, would you call it a revolution, uh, simply an uprising? And how do you situate it, historically speaking? Well, those are two very interesting questions. First off, thank you for having me on. Um, first off, whether it's a revolution or an uprising, the way revolutions are usually judged is by their outcome. Um, and there are only a few examples in history, like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution. Obviously, this did not have a happy outcome. It did not overthrow the Ancien Regime. It made sure uh, it did not pretty much change the system at all. There were three phases to the revolution, and the old guard pretty much controlled all three phases. The first phase were the street demonstrations that began in January and ended in February. And they ended because the military said, okay, we've had enough. And they cut the revolution short. But what they actually did was just beheaded the regime, but the, and the old institutions stayed in place. The institutions, during the second phase, threw up every roadblock possible to prevent the uh, uprising from actually uh, achieving its aims. Uh, All right, Professor Gelvin, I will uh, allow me to interrupt here because there's too much material. So, in fact, yes, I will go to this first stage where there has been an interim government. Uh, There were elections, two strong candidates. There was Mohamed Morsi for the Muslim Brotherhood and Ahmed Shafiq, an army man. Now, Dr. Morsi won by 51.2 of the vote. By all accounts, the elections were ethical, a first in Egypt. But at the same time, as you mentioned, there was a counter-revolution by those who lost power privileges, and they were gaining steam. So, as you also mentioned, Dr. Mursi really didn't have a chance to govern. So I'd like you to expand on what you started, that there was the old, uh, uh, the fluid, what they called them, so the old guard. So I'd like you to explain this thoroughly. Okay, sure. First of all, I wouldn't say that there were two candidates that were evenly matched. Uh, Morsi was not the first choice, even of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and people probably remember uh, the, the original candidate who was disqualified uh, by the courts. So there was that problem with the elections to begin with. But then Morsi actually was able to take control. And the problem was that there was an immediate pushback from the old guard. Everything from the Constitution that uh, had, was being written to the uh, lower house of parliament, to the upper house of parliament, a whole host of issues were being, there was a pushback. And this is why Morsi ended up failing. Now, one of the problems with Morsi was he, couldn't, he didn't compromise, and he couldn't bring in others around him that were part of the revolutionary coalition. 
If you look at Tunisia, where they actually did do that, and NAFTA, which is a Muslim Brotherhood party, when they actually did that, they were able to succeed in uh, transforming the regime. Uh, Professor Gelman, wasn't it also that Morsi promised too much to the people? I mean, the expectations were extremely high. And when he uh, failed, as everybody expected him to to deliver, because he was talking about uh, employment, he was talking uh, uh, about transportation, all the endemic problems that plagued Egypt for decades. And, of course, this didn't happen. So one year after he went, he was in office, there were those mass uprisings. So I would like you to uh, explain to us what is one of those crucial lessons. Well, first off, what we have to look at is probably the most crucial lesson that we learn is never trust Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. They were the ones who actually paid for the CC coup against the government. Now, yes, Morsi failed in many aspects, and particularly in the economy, which angered a host of Egyptians, a majority of Egyptians for sure. But if you remember, again, in Tunisia, the economy is not much better than Egypt's economy. And yet the population has been able to achieve quite a few of its goals. Now, one of the things in Tunisia, of course, is that the army is much smaller and much less powerful than it is in Egypt. And Egypt controls quite a bit of the economy. So there was a pushback from the army, a pushback from the judiciary. And what you ended up with was a rolling set of first petitions and then protests and then a coup d'etat that ultimately was paid off with $5 million from the uh, uh, Saudis, from the uh, UAE, and from Kuwait. Is there proof of uh, this, Professor Gelvin? Yes. Or, or... We don't know how much more came in uh, before, for example, and how much has come in after. But we do know that uh, these countries actually uh, gave money after the coup d'etat in order to stabilize the Egyptian economy for at least a brief period of time. Yes, and there were also the leftists who joined the army and who were demanding the removal of uh, Mohamed Morsi. Isn't that strange? I mean, there was uh, Mohamed El-Baradai, who was uh, calling for democracy in the first place, Uh, the parties of the other young people, uh, April 6th, and so on. How how would you explain this? Well, Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, during this period was no friend of democracy. Um, you could say that that stemmed from a number of factors, some of which was that the organization itself was fairly secretive, that the organization itself was hierarchical and did not have the same sort of depth of democratic inclinations as other elements within society. But at the same time, what you have to do is you have to look at what was going on from the outside and the push that was there and the attempt by Morsi and the Brotherhood to keep at least some aspect of the transformation of Egypt going. They were not able to do that. Uh, Professor James Kilvin, you seem to be very uh, critical of uh, Dr. the late Dr. Mercy and the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, I agree with you that this was not entirely a democratic uh, uh, organization. However, for Dr. Mercy himself, uh, we could say that at least he was not as corrupt as what we see now. Uh, and uh, also, he, he was a man of the people. I mean, he was not experienced, but he was not as bad as some would like to portray him. Is this a fair I don't, judgment? I don't, mean, 
I don't mean to portray it in black and white. What I mean to say, though, is that, I mean, first of all, the Morsi term in government was not nearly as bad as what we see going on in Egypt now. I mean, the, the idea that several days after the coup d'etat, um, that from 800 to 1,000 demonstrators were, were killed deliberately to make a point by the army that they were not going to tolerate dissent. I mean, that in itself demonstrates what this regime is all about, the current regime is all about. What I'm saying is that Morsi was a man of great limitations and was in a situation in which it required an extraordinary imagination to be able to break out of those limitations. And what that would mean, for example, is not getting trapped in this zero-sum game between him and the old guard, to try to reach out and form alliances with others within the revolutionary movement, which unfortunately the Brotherhood did not do. Now, maybe it's because the Brotherhood has absolutely every right to be paranoid, particularly after its you know, history with Hosni Mubarak. And yet it did not do what was necessary to be done in order to actually create a large coalition that could withstand the forces of reaction. What you're saying is most interesting because some analysts thought that, in fact, Dr. Morsi gave too much to the army. I mean, he uh, promo promoted Gen then General Abdel Fattah Sisi. He's the one who brought him into a higher position. So That's correct. So That is correct. But what, what he was trying to do, of course, was he got rid of all the generals above him. Um, because of an incident in the Sinai, just got rid of the entire general staff thinking that what he would be able to do would be to manipulate Sisi. So th this being said, um, we hear Egyptians weren't ready, aren't ready for democracy, and they need a strong man to at the helm of the country. Your comments? I think that idea of not being or not being ready for democracy is a silly idea. I mean, how are we to judge when a country is ready or not ready? Let me, let me just, uh, every year, um, the Economist Intelligence Unit publishes a ranking of countries around the world in their democracy index. The last year, the United States was number 25. Number 28 was Botswana. How, I mean, if Botswana did not have a democratic system, we would say, oh, it's something cultural in Botswana, in the same way we say, oh, it's something that Egyptians are not ready for. But they do have it. The world has made certain norms, global norms, um, uh, to be the way in which we try to rule ourselves and make sure others try to rule themselves as well. There are norms of human rights, for example. There are norms of democracy as well. Now, most countries, of course, do not you know, come close to fulfilling those norms. But at least we have international law that says this is what the norm should be. Now, in your book, uh, The Arab Uprisings, What Everyone Needs to Know, what are the lessons you would like to talk about? Well, there, there are a couple. Um, it's, as I said, it's not that the peoples of the Middle East were not ready for democracy. There was a whole host of things that threw themselves up to, to block actually any democratic transformation. First of all, these were entrenched regimes. They're not going to just give in at the first sign of protest. In addition to that, uh, there was the proxy nature 
of the counter-revolutionary forces. I mean, there's only one of the uh, important rebellions that took place during this period that did not get interfered with by a foreign government. And that was the one in Tunisia, the only successful one as well. Finally, democratic change is not going to come about by a, just a quick push, and then we hope everything is going to be democratic. What it means, what democratic change entails, is you have to go into the trade unions, you have to go into the schools, you have to go into society as a whole and build uh, institutions that are going to support that democratic change. Now, when I talk to people who were involved in the April 6th movement, the people who were in Tahrir Square, uh, they told me after uh, February 11th that they were going to become a tendency, that they were going to remain above politics. That was the worst move they could possibly make. Their job was not to remain above politics. Their job was to get their hands dirty and be in politics. And in, in fact, they were very much in, in politics against uh, Dr. Morsi. And uh, th this trend of saying, oh, well, I'm not interested in being in politics, this happened also with uh, General El-Sisi when he overthrew uh, Mohamed Morsi. At first he said, I'm not interested in becoming a president. And then sure enough, uh, he changed uh, his military attire and uh, uh, he became president and he... Not only, this was the, the first term, and the second term, he won the presidency with 92% of valid ballots. I mean, this is a, a tragedy. And now, moreover, he has changed the constitution, so I don't know for how long he, he will be staying. Do you see any, anything that could change him, that could dislodge him from this position? Uh, at the present time, I'm afraid I don't. But you have to remember also that the large sums of votes that he got, the large percentages of votes that he got, was with a very diminished electorate. People were, fewer and fewer Egyptians were voting uh, in each of the elections that um, were, you know, followed the ouster of, of Morsi. And people were just sort of like disgusted with the, with the whole thing. So, of course, he's going to win 92%. For example, here in my country, Donald Trump has over 90% approval rating among Republicans. But among the rest of the United States, approval rating is about 30-something percent. So the fact that he won with such a great uh, majority really has nothing to do with it. The Achilles heel of every single revolution in the Middle East, no matter where it stood, is the economy. There is not one economy in the Arab Middle East that is you know, uh, capable of sustaining itself in the long term. And I'm talking about the Gulf economies as well. Egypt is an economic basket case. And the fact is that uh, probably there was manipulation uh, during the time of Morsi in terms of uh, particularly petroleum supplies that were coming into Egypt. But whatever was the case, people were disgusted with the state of the economy. And this is in large measure why they wanted the old guard back. So you think we're better off now? It seems that some predict that people is going to declare bankruptcy very soon. Yeah, I, I, I mean, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Let me just make it very, very clear. My, my associates, my colleagues, my friends in Egypt, you know, if you measure Nasser to Sadat to Mubarak to Sisi, say that this is the worst regime they have lived under by far, not even close. 
the level of repression in Egypt is horrific. But the state of the economy, I agree with you, is not very good and has actually gotten worse uh, since CC took over. The thing was, as I said, was that for a temporary period, a brief period of time, there was petroleum floating into the, uh, flowing into the country. There was a stability in the currency. All this was done by the Gulf Arabs that wanted to make sure that a Muslim Brotherhood government did not succeed in um, uh, Egypt. Once Sisi was in power, it'll take a lot of money to keep the Egyptian economy going. And, of course, the, um, uh, after a while, even the Gulf uh, refused to throw good money after bad. Professor Gelfin, uh, there's one question that comes to my mind. How can you improve the economy when you say there is such a state of repression in the country? I mean, people are demoralized. They, they, they don't want to move. They don't want to do anything. Uh, they're hindered in every initiative they may take. They're afraid to act. The army is monopolizing all the economy of the country. How, how do you see this? I mean, if we had more freedom in Egypt, do you think the economy would improve? What, what does it take to, uh, to get out of this dilemma? Unfortunately, there is only one economic agenda at present, and that is the economic agenda of neoliberal economics. In other words, what they call American-style capitalism, free markets, less government intervention, what have you. Now, the result in Egypt already has been widening gap between the rich and poor, poor economic performance, uh, poverty increasing, etc. The problem is, is that there is nothing else out there uh, that the international community will really back in terms of uh, economics. I'm afraid that the, the uh, Arab world is going to be uh, going through a very, very rough period. The Arab world right now is less industrialized than it was in the 1970s. It's the second least globalized region in the world economy. It is not doing well at all in the present uh, global economy, and in the future will probably not be doing well either. So j just uh, to sum up, what would Canada have to do? I, I mean, we talk so much about democracy, about Canadian values, and so on. Is there some way we can uh, help the Egyptian people? Well, the question of, for example, democracy promotion, I think, is an interesting question, because Canada has a different track record than the United States. The United States, we go and we invade people with the expectation that we're going to build a democracy there. It didn't work in Iraq. It didn't work in Afghanistan. It has never worked anywhere that you know, we've attempted to do it, and yet we keep on doing it. The Canadian attitude is very, very different, which is that it will support indigenous efforts at democratization. NGOs, for example, that are there in the region already, or there in Egypt, or in various other places, uh, the Canadian government is willing to, 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 to help and participate in. I think that is the wisest way of going about uh, fostering uh, democratic culture in these places. We, 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 we would wish that uh, our government was less timid, you know. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, again, you know, if you compare it to the United States, I would certainly wish that my government was more timid. <laughs> well, th that's all what our time allows us, uh, Professor Gelvin. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. 
Professor uh, James Galvin is uh, at the UCLA in the Department of History. He's also the author of The Arab Uprisings, What Everyone Needs to Know. Please stay with us. This is Amandla. <laughs> 